Please take your Bibles and open them up to Daniel chapter 6. We'll be looking primarily from verses 16 all the way to the end of the chapter, right around the midpoint of the book. As we come to this text, there we find lots of reversals, and it reminded me of that game Uno. Maybe you have played it. I'm sure most of you have played that card game Uno uh, with children or maybe as children. It's a pretty simple game. I don't need to explain the rules, but it basically your goal, you're given a set of cards at the beginning, and the, your aim by the end of the game is to get rid of all of your cards before anyone else does. Meanwhile, everyone else's job is to try to get you On one hand, it needs to keep you from getting rid of your cards, or better yet, to make you pick up more cards, right? There's cards to make you draw two, there's cards to make you draw four, there's cards to skip you, there are cards that can dictate what color card you have to play, and if you don't have that card, you don't get to play at all, all sorts of cards. But perhaps the most famous card, or maybe maybe not the famous card, but the card that has probably taken on a life of its own in recent days is the reverse card, the Uno reverse card. It has become, for those of you who are under 20, it has become like slang, right? Uno reverse, whatever was told to me, now you have to do. It has become, it's taken on a life of its own. Perhaps the the best example of this uh, was, is given by a an online celebrity by the name of Max Fosch. Max Fosch is a YouTuber, has a YouTube channel, and for a, he was invited to play in a charity soccer game over in England, and while he is there at this game, his goal was to try to get himself a a yellow card. Those of you who don't play soccer, there are basically three kinds of penalties you can get. A penalty, a low-key penalty would be one where the whistle blows, the ball stops, and the other team gets a free kick. Uh, Another penalty would be, the lower or the mid-tier one would be, if it's a more serious offense, it would be a yellow card. And the referee will blow his whistle, stop play, call the player who has committed the foul to him, and then hold up a yellow card in his face. Can you imagine doing that in a football game where the the flag goes and they call the the guys to come stand in front of them and then they like drop the flag right at their face, right at their feet and like tell them what they did wrong? Well, in soccer, that's what they do. There's a yellow card. And if you get a second yellow card, that's basically the equivalent of a red card. And a red card is the most serious foul. If you get a red card, you are off the field, you're not allowed to play anymore. More than that, your team's not allowed to sub anybody for you, which means the other team has 11 people, your team will have 10, and you're not allowed to play the next game. Red cards are a big deal. Yellow cards, it's kind of like you can use them and use them out, you know, use them wisely. Well, Max Fosch's goal in this game was to get a yellow card. And after committing foul after foul after foul towards the end of the game, he is finally, after committing a a fairly bad tackle, he uh, gets a card. The, The referee blows the whistle, stops play, calls him to come over, and does what the referees do. Makes him stand in front of him, and then pulls out of his pocket, pulls the yellow card. Well, Max Fosch has been trying to orchestrate this moment for the entire game. And when the referee pulls out his yellow card and holds it up for all to see, penalizing Max, Max reaches into his pocket from his shorts and pulls out an Uno reverse card. Back at ya. 
Well, it's a low-key game. The referee chuckled, and it has become a, a viral moment. It's it, something that everyone laughs at. And sometimes we wish we had an Uno reverse card for life. Something bad happens. We wish we could just pull out a Uno reverse card and play it. No, I don't want that. We wish that if someone were to say something to us, or if someone were to hurt us in some way, or if we were to lose our job, if we were to end a relationship to be ended, we wish we could just play a universe card and turn it back on people. Sometimes we might wish, if we were having an argument, that you had a Uno reverse card at the end so you could replay that, get another chance. It doesn't work that way. Life comes, things happen. And you and I are powerless to reverse what comes. Part of what we see in our text this morning is that where you and I are powerless to reverse the consequences of, or the the consequences of other people's actions, where you and I are powerless to reverse our circumstances often, the Lord himself steps in and is quite powerful. He is more than powerful. And so as we draw our attention to Daniel chapter 6, would you join me in asking the Lord's mercy on us as we come to his word? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that by you, by your steadfast love, that you will draw us to you, O Lord. That your salvation according to your promises that we shall have an answer for those who taunt us, for we are those who trust in your word. Father, we ask that by your word you would grow us, instruct us that we may hope in you, that we may count on you. Help us to live consistently with what we say we believe. May you, O Lord, are the one who reverses all things. Give us grace in Christ to see all this and more. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Daniel chapter 6, the very first thing we see, let me just walk back. Some of you may not have been here when we first looked at the first part of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel has been conspired against. He himself was appointed by King Darius. Again, this is going back to the Chaldean Empire. I'm sorry, to the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the very beginning of King Cyrus's reign, and King Darius there in Babylon is reigning. And King Darius, he has set up his government in such a way after the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. He has set up his empire in such a way to rely upon the administrators under him to ensure that there is no loss that is suffered, that is no financial loss is suffered by the king. And so there is a a series of, we might say, a a series or a, a hierarchy of bureaucratic agents who are to oversee the government, to make sure there's no grift, no corruption that, that passes. And as a result, the, these individuals, though there are layers of administration and oversight, it just means that corruption seeps upward, that those at the top have the advantage, have the possibility to be the most corrupt of anybody underneath them, because they have the most power. They have the ones to overlook or to exact penalties. 
And Daniel, we are told, is faithful and blameless. And as a result of his faithfulness and blamelessness, the king looks at him and he's considering whether to make Daniel at the very head of his administrative government. Those others around him who are under Daniel, who are not able to get away with bribery and corruption and greed because of Daniel's oversight, Daniel becomes himself a target. No one wants to see him at the top. No one wants to be under him, to be under his oversight. No one wants to see him excel while they remain the same. And so they conspire against him and do so in quite an elaborate fashion, using the king the king's own pride against him, making, urging the king to make and pass legislation that could not be revoked, that would make it so that the king alone, for a period of time, he would be the only one that people could pray to or make requests of. The upshot was they were basically, in essence, saying, King Darius, it's as if you are a god. And we want, for a period of time, for all people to treat you as a God, to come to you as a God, to make requests and pray to you as if you are God. King Darius is flattered. He goes along with it. The very next thing we see is that Daniel, the only thing that he knows, or that everyone else has known, would challenge his faithfulness to the king, is his faithfulness to the Lord. And Daniel goes, and he begins to pray. In his own house, and he is spied upon praying by those conspirators, and they come before the king, they lay the matter before him, and King Darius is grieved at heart, tries to find a way in which he can get Daniel off the hook, and he can't. And so King Darius, by his own decree, is forced to condemn Daniel, his favored servant, to death. And that's what we see here. The Lord is able to reverse this, this order. He is, he is the one who actually reverses the circumstances of Daniel so that by the beginning of our time together, he is condemned, but by the end, he is exalted. From death to life, from condemnation to exaltation. Follow along in verse 16. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Or it might be, may he deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him, and also his sleep went from him. So Daniel is indeed condemned. He is indeed condemned to death. And you'll notice, Daniel, through this whole process, he remains silent. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't leverage his power, leverage his rights, leverage any of that. He, is, he remains silent. He has entrusted himself over to his God. He saw the foolishness of the king's law. He saw what the upshot of it would be. He, he was tracking with it. He knew if he prayed that this would be the price. But Daniel weighed the potential price of prayer and counted death a cheap cost to communion with God in prayer. And for his faithfulness to God, Daniel is thrown into the den of lions. 
lions in the Medo-Persian world, we know from historical sources, they were used as particularly heinous forms of execution. The Persians, Medo-Persians and the Persians were particularly creative in coming up with terrifying and terrible ways to murder and kill people. And lions, death by lions, was one of those ways. And they would put them in cages or they would create man-made caves or structures in which they would keep them locked up or, or sort of uh, entrapped in. And then they would, they would starve them and feed them rarely to keep them on that point of starvation. And Daniel is thrown into such a pit, thrown into such a den. And the stone is sealed. The stone is rolled over the top of that den. And the signet ring of the king and of his lords is used to make sure to ensure that no one comes to his rescue and that nothing is changed. And it is into this den that Daniel is tossed. And the king carries out this sentence. And yet, despite the condemnation of King Darius, God has other plans. We see, we see him here playing his first Uno reverse card, as it were. And Daniel is turned from death to life. We see this uh, in verse 19. The, the, king, the hope of King Darius gets to be expressed. He, all night long, he's fasting, he's praying, he wants no diversions. He is hoping that Daniel's God will save him. Barely, barely able to believe that it's possible. But perhaps he has heard what Daniel's God has done in previous decades, how Daniel's God has saved others. And so he's hoping perhaps now there will be another rescue. And so verse 19, early the next day, then the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. And the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, faithfully, has your God been able to deliver you from the den of lions? And Daniel answers. Daniel says to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him. And commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no injury whatever was found on him. Because he believed in his God. Daniel, shockingly, is alive. He is condemned to death because he prays. And he is condemned to this den of lion. And, and there, an angel of the Lord is sent. Perhaps this is the angel of the Lord. Perhaps merely the mediator, a, a, an intermediator of the Lord. But clearly what we have here is God's own presence is here with Daniel. Daniel, condemned to death in the lion's den for praying, now finds himself communing with the living God in ways that he has never communed with God before. Daniel experienced more joy in the presence of God in the den of lions than he had praying in quiet solitude in his room.
He knew communion with God in this moment. And he is, he is kept, he is rescued, he is delivered. Why? Well, because he is blameless. We see that repeatedly over and over again. I was found innocent before him, verse 22. And also, O king, I have done no wrong for you. I've been blameless. I am righteous. It's not that he is sinless. Make no mistake, Daniel's not here saying that he is sinless or that he is perfect righteousness before God. Later on, when Daniel is praying and he is confessing the sin of the people of Israel, he lumps himself in with them as sinners. Daniel is conscious of his standing before God as a sinner. Yet, he is able to say that he is here because he has been faithful, because he has been blameless. Oh, consider what a benefit this condemnation was. Daniel sees more of God, experiences more of God surrounded by these lions than he had in the comfort of his room. He had entrusted himself to the Lord. You know, these these verses are the only time Daniel speaks in the entire chapter. Daniel had entrusted himself over to the Lord entrusted himself into the hands of his God. And so he is able to rejoice in God, to be able to point to God's deliverance. Well, brothers and sisters, Daniel is here condemned. Condemned to be executed in the most horrendous way possible. And he does not lose hope. It is not, you and I should not think that Daniel expected to be delivered. There is no sense of that in this chapter. Daniel hadn't read Daniel 6 yet. It hadn't happened yet. He didn't know. By all accounts and purposes, he thought this was the end. He thought he was going to die. But he had entrusted his life for many years over to the Lord. And why would he stop now? He was confident that if it was the Lord's will, he would be able to deliver him. But he was also confident that he had now, he who was now old, he who is now in his 80s, being tossed into this den, how much, how great was his hope, his expectation that he would soon be with his God. I am sure that he was glad to be able to testify of God's deliverance to him. I wonder if there was also a hint of disappointment that he did not get to see his Lord and Savior, that he did not get to experience full, unfettered access and present in the presence of his God in heaven. Daniel entrusted himself to the Lord. I'm reminded of that passage that we as a church were encouraged to memorize just a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 5, reminding us that we are able to rejoice in our sufferings. Why? The rest of the world is looking to escape suffering, to escape pain. But Paul tells us that we as Christians are able to rejoice in suffering because suffering produces something. It produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering in the hands of our good God, is far, far from an accident, far from meaningless. 
Indeed, in the hands of God, it is the scalpel. It is like the scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. It is meaningful. It is there to produce God's good purposes for his children. And so we rejoice just as Daniel is able to remain steadfast. But more than this, we see Daniel not just re- this reversal from, of Daniel's fortunes from death to life, but from condemnation to exaltation. Look with me at the very end of the chapter, verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel prospers under their reign. Indeed, the idea here is not just that he flourished. The idea is that he himself was exalted following this. Here's that reverse card. He who was condemned is in the good hand of God. He is exalted. What an incredible picture Daniel is of Christ. Christ who was indeed sinless and blameless, truly faithful. And yet he is condemned. And yet even as he is condemned to death, he does not waver, yet hopes in the Lord, submits himself to the Lord, submits himself to his Father. More than this, just as Christ was condemned, he was exalted and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. And brothers and sisters in Christ, entrust yourselves to a faithful creator. Listen to these words from 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and 19, 12 to 19, where Peter is talking about the suffering that we as Christians will endure in this world. And he counsels us, calls us to live out. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those for who, who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the godly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Or listen to these words just a chapter later in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then again, in 2 Timothy 4, 16-18, at my first defense, Paul says, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. He was alone. Then he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
And the Lord will rescue me from every trial, every evil deed, and bring me safely home, safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. That, this idea of lions and lion's den gets picked up by the New Testament writers to describe the suffering and the trials that we will find ourselves in in this world. Whether that suffering, whether that trial is sin and it's inward temptation, whether it is externally, through the external means of those who oppose God's people. Here that there is this great reversal, not only from death to life, but from condemnation to exaltation. There's more than just this reversal from Daniel's perspective. It is also a reversal of those who had conspired against him. Do you see that in verse 24? They had, these conspirators had worked to ensure that Daniel was the one at the bottom of the lion's pit. He was going to die. You can imagine the king, he goes back to his throne and he is mortified, he is nervous, he is anxious, and he is sleepless. We're not told what the conspirators felt like, but I imagine they were happy. They were partying, celebrating, rejoicing. They slept well. But their joy and their lives were cut short. Verse 24. And the king, after Daniel is raised up, the king and they brought those men who had accused Daniel. And they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, and their wives. The lions overpowered them. Lest we think that the lions were somehow not hungry, here we find that the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. These people barely reached the bottom before the lions were enraged. I want you to notice the harshness of this penalty. Not only the men who conspired against Daniel, but also their wives and children are thrown into the lions. This, on one hand, would have been the normal course of action for the Persian Empire. You and I, we rightly look at this and we say, that's wrong. Someone commits a crime. Their family, their wives, their children are not in prison. They do not receive the the condemnation. They do not share in the condemnation publicly for that crime. But in Persia, it was typical. It was an honor-shame culture. And so when one person did something, especially if it was egregious, the whole family bore it. We still have examples of this in the world today. In those countries and those cultures which are honor, strongly honor-shame cultures, where someone does something wrong and the family name is put to shame, And so the family, after that, does everything they can to lift up the family name, to reverse that. Because till that reversal happens, they receive public condemnation for for this relative's actions. So on on one hand, this makes sense within Persian culture. But we have to, we have to agree that on some level this is unjust, isn't it? Even as he's trying to accomplish justice, this is, on one level, this is unjust. Whenever someone suffers for the wrongdoing of another, we can rightly say, this isn't right. And I would argue this is typical of our world today. Where to reverse 
or to correct a perceived injustice, we allow for certain other groups to be to feel the weight of some kind of injustice themselves. That is, to correct one injustice, we commit another injustice. To make one thing right for one group, we do something wrong for another group. That is typical. That is how we think in our day and age. That is human justice, and it is faulty. From a biblical perspective, we can say that this justice system here in ancient Persia, like every justice system, is uniquely flawed. We can't hope, according to human standards of justice, we can't hope in this world to get perfect justice. Friend, if you are hoping that that the Supreme Court or that the right politician will be able to secure perfect justice for whatever group, for whatever person, for you, yourself, brother and sister, it is not possible. Our hope is not in marbled halls of power to achieve justice for us. The closest we can get, even with our justice system, which is far better than what we see here, the closest we can hope to get is what we might call proximate justice. That is, something close to justice. The only one who is truly able to get justice is the Lord. So from one perspective, we can say, rightly so, that this is unjust. But even as this is an atrocity, even as this is unjust of the king to do this, I want you to understand this is a picture of the wrath of God against all who oppose his people. This is an idea we've been talking about as this, in Sunday school as they've been walking through the book of Nahum. And it is good for us to meditate on this. We have in our, our culture, our day and age, this idea that the Old Testament God was one who was full of wrath and full of anger, but we don't really want anything to do with him anymore. What we want is a New Testament God. He is God of love. We might separate the God of the, the, the Father. God the Father is one of anger. He is one of wrath. He is one of justice. But Jesus, oh, here is mercy. Here is grace. Here is forgiveness. Here is love. I want you to understand that is not the case biblically. In fact, some of what we find as the strongest justice language in the Bible, the most vivid, the most alarming, the most terrifying pictures that we have of God's justice are not found in the Old Testament, but are found in the New. Listen to this. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Then I saw, the Apostle John says, then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Christ who is on this, on this, on this horse. This is Christ who is being pictured here, coming with justice, that white horse, that, that image of him who is just and true. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the of God Almighty 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the the passage goes on to depict the justice and the judgment of Christ Jesus. Friends, I realize this is an uncomfortable topic for us. But the judgment of God, as terrifying as it is, is a matter of hope for God's people. His wrath is coming and it is going, he's going to establish justice and righteousness in the world. Our chief problem with the wrath of God is the fact that you and I do not adequately, do not rightly understand the seriousness of sin. We have cheapened our sin, our offense against God, so much that it makes his wrath against us, his judgment in the world, seem like way over the top, way unjust, because how could it be just? Our sin is so small. We do not see that our sin is first and foremost against him, him who is righteous, him who is innocent, him who is pure. If we want a picture of how great our sin is, we have only to look to the cross of Christ Jesus. There, the, there the, the pure and sinless Son of God suffers in the place of sinners. How great is our sin? How great is your sin? Your sin is so great, it could only be paid for by the Son of God himself coming to this world taking on humanity, suffering on the cross, bearing the wrath of God in your place. That's what your sin looks like. The mutilated body of our Savior, crucified. Friend, we, we so overlook our sin. We tend to be so much more incensed over the sin of others. We watch what happens in the news. We read about things online. We interact with people and we are far more upset about what they do rather than what we do. We have not yet begun to understand the seriousness of our sin. And because of that, we will have not yet begun to appreciate the judgment of God nor the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. These these men, they were experiencing the full wrath of the king, and it is a picture of the just wrath of God in the end. And if you and I will hope in Christ, we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, for those who have been united to Christ by faith. No condemnation. There is no more judgment. Oh, the Lord may discipline us as a father, but he does not condemn us anymore. Christ has drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. There is nothing left. If the old Folgers coffee commercial was good to the last drop, Christ has drank the cup of the wrath of God for his people to the last drop. Oh, friend, if 
you are not a Christian, I want you to understand you are still under the wrath of God. Listen to these words from John chapter 3. We, as Christians, so often rejoice in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. That is, they will not suffer the wrath of God. They will not suffer his judgment and condemnation. But they will have life, eternal life. Verse 17 and 18 read on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's not that we will be condemned, but we are, if you have not trusted in Christ, you are now already under his condemnation. Oh friend, trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus. There is one more Una reverse card that the Lord plays in our passage, and it is regarding Darius, King Darius himself. God turns King Darius from one who had gloried in himself to one who glories in God. At the beginning of the chapter, Darius is all on board. You want to talk about really poor decisions of executive action? This was one of the worst in all of human history. Everyone has to treat me like a god for an entire month. It didn't last long before King Darius himself finds himself helpless to get out of the law, to get out of punishing the person that he does not want to punish. A poor god he makes. Yet the one at the very beginning of the chapter who demands that all people treat him like a god, by the end of the chapter is glorying and exalting in God alone. Look with me in verse 25 to 27. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one who shall, which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. This man who had started this chapter glorying in himself, the Lord by his grace turns to become one who honors and glories in God. And we ought not to take and read too much into this. We do not know that this indicates that Darius himself has converted to worshiping the Lord. It appears at the very least he is recognizing Daniel's God along in in the pantheon of gods that he worshipped. What we do know here is that Darius, who starts worshiping himself, ends worshiping the Lord. Friends, this is exactly what God has done with all of us who trust in him. We start with glorying in ourselves. And God is intent to rescue us so that we may be to the praise of his glory. Now go back, if you'll consider how poor substitutes we make to God. You have only to go back in time. Go back to the early 1990s when the players for the NFL decide to go on strike. During that fateful season, 
these players, as they are striking, not willing to play football, the teams insisting that they will still try to field some kind of NFL team. They go out and they get players who are way past their prime. They get players who would never be able to make an NFL team. And they begin to they give them suits they give, or they give them the, the, the uh, uniforms. They bring them in and they let them play a handful of games before the players end the strike and come back. And it was... The product on the field was exactly what you would expect from men who wouldn't be able to normally play good football. It was ugly. It was poor. They didn't have good training. They weren't fast always. They, they, they Terrible players, many of them. They made poor substitutes. And you and I, on a far greater scale, we make poor substitutes for the glory of God. But notice... Notice how, in this passage, Darius, King Darius, is turned from the very heart of one who worships and glories himself, one who has, had gone from substituting himself for the glory of God to one who finally honors and praises God. This is what you and I are called to do. This is what God does, and friends, this is what you and I need God to continue to do in all of our lives, to turn us who are... As one writer has put it, we are born navel gazers. That is, we are, we are turned inward on ourselves, interested in ourselves, feeding our flesh, caring about what we desire. And what you and I need more than anything is to be turned from the inside out, our gaze to be lifted from below to above, to see and savor the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we need your grace to do in us what we cannot do ourselves. Oh Lord, you have for so many of us made us, turned us from lovers of self to lovers of God. You have changed our expectations from those who were once condemned to those who will be in Christ exalted with you. Oh, Father, we pray that you will, that you will help us to trust in you. And no matter what may come, we will endure to the end, confident, that no matter what trials you bring, that you, O oh Lord, are capable of keeping us through them, securing us through them. O oh, give us grace that we may anchor ourselves to you, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.